You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Eric Kaufman. Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is the author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism and the Future of White Majorities, which was published by Penguin in uh, late 2018. And he's written several other books on similar issues, um, Changing Places, Mapping the White British Response to Ethnic Change in 2014, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, Demography and Politics in the 21st Century, 2010. That's your scary book, Eric. Um, (laughs) Maybe we'll come to that thesis. And The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, The Decline of Dominant Ethnicity in the United States in 2004. And two other books. My goodness, very productive. He can be found <laughs> on Twitter at E.P. Kaufman, and I'll put those in the, that in the show notes, and on the web at www.sneps.net. Uh, welcome, Eric. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this. It's great to be here, Iona. I, I really enjoyed your book, and I'm, I'm particularly happy to have you on because I think I noticed, uh, especially on Twitter, which is not always a place that fosters particularly careful, close readings of <laughs> thoughtful evaluations of people's work. I think some people uh, just sort of see the title and it sets something off in them, the title of your book. And yes, they, they they think they already know what your thesis is, what your stance is, and um, they either think that you are a crazed, woke person who feels that white people are inherently evil, or you are a raging racist and uh, you are you're you're really worried about the demise of the of the superior white race. Um, right. so, <laughs> um, and I was actually a little bit I, when I started reading it myself. I had no idea what was going to what kind of stance you were going to take, and I guess that's the sign of a good book. I hope so. <laughs> so, first of all, you talk about a lot about responses to immigration within the book, responses to immigration on the part of the white majority in white majority countries like the UK and the US. You delineate, I think, uh, four responses. Well, I think one of the first things you do is you debunk the idea that people's feelings about immigrants are linked to uh, economics. That's right. So, So sort of the first thing I try and do is go through a lot of the large-scale survey data and experimental evidence. So it's very much based on that kind of social science, and much less so 
what I think is a problem, which are some of the narratives coming out of the media. So, so really, if you really look at individual level survey data, the economic explanation really falls apart, not totally, but in large measure. So, so a lot of the case that I'm making is that um, a person's income, their class, their job situation doesn't tell us uh, very much about their likelihood of voting for uh, the populist rights, for, for Brexit, for Trump, etc. It's, it's much more about uh, values and cultural dispositions. Yeah, that's a very um, uh, unusual view. I had always assumed that the lower your income, the less educated you were, the more likely you were to vote for Brexit, Trump, and populist right parties. I'm not equating those three things, by the way, just to be just to make that clear. Uh, I'm equating them only in this sense, but not in the sense that they're all equally bad or that they are linked necessarily. Well, yeah, I think what you can see is that, uh, for example, um, if you take people who are who think immigration should be reduced a lot, uh, about eighty uh, percent, they have about a 0.8 likelihood of voting having voted to leave the European Union. And those who think it should be increased a lot have a zero likelihood of voting to leave the European Union. It's almost as strong as a predictor as your views on the European Union, actually. So um, immigration is extremely tightly linked, for example. And similarly with Trump, the people who are most uh, pro-immigration, you only have about a 0.1 likely, amongst white Americans, only about a 0.1 chance of voting for Trump and those who are thinks immigration should be reduced a lot. It's about it's over 0.8. So these are absolutely massive differences. Now the other thing is that some might say, oh well, underlying the um, worry about immigration is some kind of economics anxiety. But here again, uh, if you look at uh, the correlations, income levels, economic status doesn't tell us very much. And you know, if the economic thesis was was right, you'd expect poorer people to be considerably more likely to. Um, be op, you know, opposed to immigration, but it turns out that it's in fact linked to what seem like unrelated dispositions, views on the death penalty, uh, even something like <laughs> um, even something like should Wimbledon inv- enforce a dress code for its tennis players. So, yeah, people who want immigration reduced a lot, um, there's a ten percent higher share amongst young people. Let's say young middle class people. 10 points higher share uh, of those who have, uh, who say Wimbledon should enforce a dress code, say their immigration should be reduced a lot. Whereas amongst those who, who are opposed to the Wimbledon dress code of that age group, it's something like, you know, 60% um, who want a, a, a current or higher levels and only 4% who want lower. So it's, it's really a big, big difference on something which seems very unrelated, but it's it's related to this dimension of the same question could be asked about, do you keep your workplace neat and tidy or is it messy and disorganized? Now, I'm not saying that people who are pro-immigration have are predominantly having messy and disorganized workplaces, but it's closer to a one-to-one ratio between the messy and the neat, whereas for those who want uh, much reduced immigration, there's a much higher ratio, uh, share who have a neat and tidy workspace. So that's just a kind of sort of entree into the kinds of psychological dispositions around attitudes to difference and openness, um, which Jonathan Haidt talks about actually in his 2008 TED talk. 
Uh, and those sorts of general psychological dispositions in some way predict the kinds of orientations that lead one to be more sympathetic to the appeals of populist right parties. That is, difference is seen more as disorder and change as a kind of loss. So, for example, if you ask an American, um, you know, if you the question, things in America were better in the past, the extent of agreement with that, particularly American culture was better in the past, the greater your agreement with that, uh, the much stronger your likelihood of being opposed to or wanting immigration reduced and therefore supporting Trump. Right. So it's a, it's a strongly conservative or reactionary even if you're actually wanting wanting to go back rather than just keep things the same kind of attitude. Yeah, I hesitate to use that word reaction. But yes, it's it's essentially you want continuity with the past and you want to preserve the past and you're attached to uh, stability. That's basically it. If you think the past was actually better than then isn't that reactionary by definition? I mean, I know that word is quite inflammatory, but if you see what I mean, uh, rather than just conservative? Not really in the sense that I think at the heart of a, of conservatism and, and in a way G.A. Cohen's work on, um, on conservatism uh, as a sort of defense of existing values. So, for example, wanting to preserve a historic building or um, a particular species of native plant or landscape stems from that same disposition of wanting to conserve the past. So I don't think it's inherently a reactionary thing. Even, for example, preserving a set of values is has partakes of that conservatism. Now, it could be... So, for example, if the past was diverse and everybody's melted together, then maybe a conservative would miss would be nostalgic for that diverse past in a way. So it's not always, doesn't always have the implications we think it does. That's sort of what the psychologist Karen Stenner would call status quo conservatism. It's not the same thing as ideological conservatism, but it is related to it. And in this case, I think, for example, the disposition to preserve historic building uh, and landscape is similar to this disposition to preserve a, a historic ethnic composition um, of one's nation. So I don't think it's actually necessarily uh, can be labeled some kind of reactionary thing that you want to dominate. So that's a different orientation around domination and power, which I think is is a separate, that also plays into this vote. I don't want to minimize that, but I think sometimes the progressive critique tends to sort of elide these things together that, oh, they're nostalgic for power over and keeping minorities down. Some are, and we have to distinguish those people. That really is retrograde. But from those who simply are uh, nostalgic for a particular way of life or particular um, set of uh, conditions that obtained, you know, when they were younger. Mm, mm. I think we'll come on to whether it's, whether there's a category confusion here between preserving the way of life and preserving a certain genetic makeup. But let's come on to that later, because you talk a lot about um, redefining what it means to be white and ethnic versus civic nationalisms. But first, I I just want to uh, emphasize that one of the other aspects of this that you debunk is not just on an individual level, but on a societal level, we don't necessarily see more support for ethno-nationalism in the far right when the economy is in bad in bad shape. Um, so on a societal level as well, it's not this is not about a reaction to economic fears. 
Correct. Yeah. So in explaining the question of why is this happening now, in a way, post-2014 in particular, a little earlier in Britain, uh, you know, you can look at the 2007-8 economic crash and you can see essentially no effect on populist right support. And if anything, the profile, the importance of immigration to people as an issue is lower because they're worrying about the economy. And that worry about the economy, for example, if you look at Brexit right now, the worry over the economy post-Brexit is dampening down the immigration issue. So actually, um, we can see that that a poor economy can have multiple effects, including reducing uh, concern over immigration and, and support for the populist right. By contrast, if you consider the 2013 to 15 migrant crisis, uh, there we see an almost uniform increase across the board in populist right support. Uh, and, and I think that natural experiment, on the one hand, an economic crisis, on another hand, on the other hand, a sort of sudden influx of migrants shows which of these forces is really driving uh, populist right support. And, and uh, I think uh, shows, again, that that economics is, is really not a way of explaining why this is happening now, nor is that longer term deindustrialization and de-skilling, which has really been going on for 40, 50 years. And I don't think provides a very convincing ex- explanation of, of why this is happening right now. How much do you think that the fears are connected with fears about specifically about Islam? And how much is more uh, general wariness of changing the demographics of the country? Here in Argentina, um, Actually, well, I don't hear many much anxiety about immigration because most people are wise enough not to want to immigrate here. <laughs> so we're not a desirable destination, except for people from neighboring countries. So we have a bit of an influx of Venezuelans and Colombians. and But in a sense, that is like an almost like an exchange because during the Dirty War, Tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of Argentines, I think, uh, found refuge in Venezuela, which at that time was a prosperous and stable, politically stable country. Um, so I think it's it's very hard to feel resentment there. How much spike was there after the couple of years where there were the, the number of terrorist attacks in France, for example? Well, I think that. Um the studies that I've seen suggest that terrorism is not the main driver. Um, that what happens after the the you know the Bataclan attack um, or these these attacks on Charlie Hebdo was that people who were already inclined to support the Front National interpreted this as yet more evidence of threat, and those who were unsupportive of that view sort of supported that we must come together and join hands with Muslim. We are, you know, that that is sort of their response. So it's sort of reverberated within echo chambers. Um, it's not to say it has no effect, but I haven't been able to see a paper or anything that sort of fingered this as a major driver. And actually, if we look at um, populist right movements, you know, prior to about, even if you if you take Austria, you know, Jörg Haider reached 27% in a kind of shock vote in 1999. Um, it really wasn't until 2007 and 8 till anybody started talking about Islam in any way there. Uh, in Hungary, they weren't talking about Islam. So, so you already saw some uh, populist right activity doing pretty well uh, without Islam. And clearly in the U.S. case as well, the issue was much more about illegal immigration of Latinos on the southern border. Uh, now, I don't want to sort of minimize the effect of it. And, and likewise, in Britain, I think uh, – 
even though it played a role, it did play a role, and I wouldn't want to underplay it because of the news of the migrant crisis that was utilized. However, still, there were other sources, including the East European influx, which contributed to to the Brexit votes, uh, you know, the Brexit vote. So I think it is a factor. I still don't believe it's the major factor. I think, it, and, and, and certainly if you take um, votes to reduce immigration, votes for populist parties or, or populist parties in coalition, as in New Zealand, or populist parties that, such as the CAQ in Quebec, um, yes, Islam plays a role. I'm not going to deny that it's, a, it's an important part of the picture uh, in both locations. But still, I think much more was the pace, perceived pace of immigration and some of the uh, rhetoric around congestion in, in urban areas was, was part of that as well. So I think it is a factor for some, but I, I don't think it's the major driver. I mean, there is a, an element of the liberal-minded population, uh, gays, Jews, etc., as well, who will vote populist right because of fear of Islam. But I think for the most part, it's people with these uh, psychological orientations around order seeking, what's known as authoritarianism or status quo conservatism. Um, and they're worried about ethnic shifts more than about simply about threats to liberty uh, coming from conservative Islam. Mm, interesting. So talking about responses here, I have to say, all of that is very counterintuitive to me. I feel like, well, I would never vote for a, a far-right party. And, um, you know, I lived, uh, obviously, and I lived in India where um, there's a, a large, large Muslim minority and they're quite a conservative community. And, uh, and I did not feel threatened by them, by that at all, even though I heartily d despise traditional Islam. But I think if there was ever an issue that would sway me in that direction, um, my my fears would be about cultural shifts towards a more theocratic society, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. So I don't, I don't. Ha that's not that's not a fear that's in my mind. But if something was going to drive me in that direction, that that would be the issue. So it's counterintuitive to me, but but yeah, I, yeah. you have the data. So, well, I, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I, it's just that I mean, you can see, for example, that countries that have in Europe that have very few Muslims. Finland was an example of this. Um, in that case, if you ask, there was a question asked about you know how willing are you to have Muslims settle in your country, and the willingness in the countries with very few Muslims, Argentina would be an example, was actually quite low because this is a strange thing people don't understand. Um, once there is a, a percentage of Muslims in the country, uh, then there's sort of the, the, the sort of opposition declines because people kind of are dealing with a known quantity. They know actually <laughs> these people don't bite and actually, there are many shades within Islam. Then you get, however, to once you reach above 5% uh, Muslims in the population, the relationship then starts to move back the other way. And again, this is where I'm not sure this is a fear issue as much as it is a question of, of shifts in the population. Now, it could, it's not entirely um, not consonant with what you're saying. It's just to say that I'm not sure the fear of the unknown, fear of the different is necessarily a big driver in the established immigration societies. It might be a factor in Eastern Europe or places that have really not had that kind of experience. I sometimes use the analogy of the nuclear power plant where if you live 
Um, you know, if you live right next door to it, you understand it. It's it's not so scary. If you live very far away, you never think about it. But if you're kind of just close enough to think you might be covered by a nuclear meltdown, uh, and you you aren't close enough to understand it, that's that's sort of where you have the peak of the anxiety. So there's a bit of that going on. I would say though that I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment here, and I would say that in in that specific case, it's not fear of the unknown. Well, it's fear of the unknown in the sense of not knowing what will happen to the country. So they they fear major changes to the country, right? So in that sense, there's a fear of the unknown. But it's not fear. It's 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 not fear of the unknown in in the same way as if I said you know a large uh, a large number of Jains or of Buddhists or of Zoroastrians or something or some right. like my own really obscure Zoroast- religion. You won't get many of those. <laughs> no, that's never going to happen. But uh, <laughs> in some hypothetical situation, you know, no one even has any clue what the religion is about, and the only thing they know is. If they know anything, the only thing they know is that um, our funerary rites involve being eaten by vultures, which most people find a bit weird. But I don't think that people, I I think that the response would be uh, different. So what's feared in, in Islam, I think Islam is feared because there are so many theocratic Islamic countries around the world and because there is so much Islamic terrorism and also because Within Islam, there is obviously not with all Muslims or anything like that, but within Islam, there is a lot of oppression of women, homophobia, etc. So I think the fears are not, I think it's a little too simplistic and maybe a bit condescending to see it as a fear of the unknown. It's a really specific fear that, or it can be for some people, a specific fear that that those values are going to come come in and, and influence their society in a bad way. So, for example, here in, in here in Argentina, I can walk down the you can walk down the street so as a woman, as scantily dressed as you like, and everything will be fine. If you do that in India, you're uh, India is not a Muslim country. So I'm using a non-Muslim example, but right. if you do that in India, you will you will attract a lot of hostile attention and it might even become dangerous. So there's a freedom that you have here in dress that you don't have there. And so I could see how if we suddenly imported, you know, 20 million hardline traditionalist Hindutva supporters (laughs) um, in some nightmare um, to our small country, you could see how that could change the more is very quickly so i i you know there are some i think there are some legitimate fears but but clearly if if the fears are not linked to are not specifically linked in this statistical way to islam then my theory of what is going on is is false and yours is more correct well i don't think it's either or i think there is so an element of what you talk about, uh, especially in the countries like France that have a larger Muslim population. Um, however, for example, you know, in we have data in the United States on how important people consider their white identity, um, and the the stronger one's white identity or Christian identity, the greater the likelihood of voting for 
Donald Trump, for example. And, and in, in, say, Britain, the question isn't as good as that. It's more a question on, um, you know, how important is the nation uh, to your sense of who you are, uh, attachment to there's some question in which which one could use as an approximation for white identity but again that sort of thing also strongly predicts uh, you know support for populist right or opposition to immigration so I I, I think there's a, a combination of things going on but my I, I've also looked for example at at whether people are more anti-immigration in areas where the minorities are more Muslim as opposed to where they are more for example, Hindu or, or, or Christian or something. And it's not easy to find strong evidence that places with a more Muslim-inflected minority population have a higher opposition to... to so I think there is... Uh, I do think there is something going on there amongst a percentage of the population. I just think it's a, a lesser part of the explanation, that's all. So, Eric, you talked about four responses that the majority, a majority white population in the West can have to an influx of immigrants. And I think you said those reactions were fight, flee, repress, and join. Could you outline those for us? Maybe the, okay. um, and leave join until last, because I think that's going to segue nicely into the, the next part of the conversation that I, I want to have. Yeah. So if, if you think of uh, response to a challenge, the fight or flight response, um, that's sort of one basis for thinking about s- responses to uh, change. So there was a book called Exit, Voice and Loyalty. The idea of exit, uh, fleeing a challenge, voice is sort of opposing a challenge. So that, that I, Albert O. Hirschman did a short book, one of these great sort of 50-page little books you can get through very quickly. Uh, but but the, the point there is that when it comes to um, the kinds of ethnic changes that, that we're going to see, that we've already seen, but we're going to see this century, which are dramatic. So in the case of Canada, from something like 20% white in 2006 to roughly um, uh, only, eight, uh, sorry, roughly 80% white in 2006 to only about 20%, uh, according to the projections, at current immigration levels in 2106. So that kind of speed um, is, in my view, kind of unsettling. Uh, conservative members of ethnic majorities. The first response is then to vote for um, anti-immigration parties or politicians in the case of the United States. Uh, and, and so that sort of resistance then to these changes is one response, the fight response. The alternative or one uh, alternative might be, however, to to flee the change by retreating into um white majority neighborhoods and social networks. Now, I I did see a paper just recently at the American Political Science Association conference that makes this very argument that argues that uh, people who are, for example, in a relatively white neighborhood, but in an area that's surrounded by heavily minority neighborhoods, and if their area starts to change, they can't easily and cheaply move to another surrounding area that is relatively white, and therefore they are more likely to be voting for populist right parties. Now, this is a sort of paper, it's still a bit, uh, needs to be replicated, but it kind of gets at this idea that perhaps uh, people have an option instead of of resisting to to maybe retreat. Uh, And Robert Putnam, the American political scientist, talks a lot about this hunkering down in heavily diverse areas where people, uh, especially whites, will tend to um, reduce their level of trust in neighbors and so on. Um, and, and I show in the book how even in heavily non-white areas uh, of 
wards in Britain, you see that whites have a predominantly white social network. So that's kind of an example of where you'd see the flee response rather than the fight response, although I kind of argue that both of these things are going on concurrently. You're getting people who are both fleeing and um, and fighting um, these changes. Um, could I, Eric, could I just, just interject in the flea part? Because you had some quite striking um, statistics about white people's self-segregation, as I think you call it. So you said that we, when we are looking at this kind of question, we usually focus on how immig- how the immigrants are behaving or how non-white minorities are behaving, whether they are integrating into society um, by having white friends, colleagues, acquaintances, etc., or whether they are ghettoized or kind of self-segregated or leading these parallel lifestyles. There's a lot of anxiety about that. But you said that, in fact, it's, it's quite helpful to look at white people's behavior. And in fact, a lot of or what you're seeing is a lot of white people are self-segregating. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, that actually the pattern we see is that minority groups, if you take Bangladeshis in East London uh, or Hispanics in greater Los Angeles, have had a tendency of leaving their areas of initial concentration and moving out towards other areas where they are less present. Uh, by contrast, the... Um, white population uh, has tended, particularly in in London, but also in the US and Canada, to uh, be more likely to to settle. It's not that there's white flight, but when they choose to settle down, they tend to pick an area that's got an above average uh, share of white population, all other things being equal. Of course, economics, marital status, and age are going to be the main drivers of where you live. But when controlling for those things in a quite sophisticated model of moving, you can see that, in fact, uh, whites are choosing areas that are, are majority white. And that's also been confirmed in sort of show card studies where people are given a card to fill in and how, what share do they want to be their own group. Whites tend to, to be most exclusive in terms of wanting something like 70% of their neighbors to be white, whereas minority groups, it's more like between 50 and 60. So it's a bit lower. Uh, and certainly, if you look at where, which parts of, of America or Britain have, or Canada have the fastest uh, gr- gross or aggregate white population increase, those tend to be in places that are um, heavily over 85% white and with a very, min- a very moderate increases in minority. So they're both heavily white and they're not changing very fast. Whereas the areas that are diverse are becoming more diverse at a faster rate. It's certainly not what we would expect on the basis of random movement. Random movement should be in the areas that are very diverse should be becoming more white and the white areas should be becoming more diverse. But we're seeing it in the maintenance of the reverse. Mm. Okay, thank you. And so repress was very important to you. (laughs) Right. To your thesis, not to you personally, sorry. Um. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So repress is really the third response, which could be that, you know, you really don't like what's going on, but you don't want to actually express an anti-immigration view or vote for an anti-immigration politician because you think that's morally wrong because of an ethics of anti-racism. So you think it's sort of racist to want to resist these changes. I think that's quite important in the in the Western case uh, as a factor. And um, the stronger that sense that it's kind of racist to be 
against immigration, particularly for ethno-cultural reasons, uh, the greater reluctance to be uh, supporting the fight response. We can see that in the case of the U.S., for example, amongst white Americans, um, if you take uh, postgraduates who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, over 90% of them would say that somebody who wants to reduce immigration to help maintain the uh, white share of the American population is, is racist, as opposed to acting in a group self-interested way. So they see that kind of uh, majority tribalism, that sort of protective behavior is racist, whereas only about 6% of working class white Trump voters would agree with that. And very similar in the case of the UK, where uh, 0% actually of um, white uh, British people who voted leave and who don't have a degree uh, say that um, that person is being racist. They would call it group self-interest, whereas about 80% of Remain voters who are pro-immigration would say that that's racist. So we see these vast differences on the basis of of this, what I would call the repressed variable, the degree to which you are sort of repressing your opposition to these changes on the basis of a kind of anti-racist morality, which has emerged as a powerful force. I mean, in a way, the on-campus political correctness that we see now, uh, wokeness, some people say, is in some ways just the extreme form of this um, kind of anti-racist morality, which has a sort of uh, more banal or, or routinized form in much of the population, uh, particularly the progressive population. So that that is a, an important force, and it's become more important, uh, much more important since the late 1960s, but uh, has increased in waves in the late 60s, in the late 1980s, and then also since 2013. So we've seen these upsurges in this progressive moralism, which is a very important variable. Mm. So people are, they're ashamed, and so they're hiding what they actually think, but you can see it, you can see it revealed in their behavior. Well, not, not so much. No, they are doing that. So they're cross-pressured between their their sense of ethics and their, or the anti-racist ethics and beliefs and their perhaps ethnic identity as, as a member of a white majority. And so, for example, if you, even if we talk about um, something like, uh, you know, opposition to Muslim schools, if people are told, oh, yes, this is something a conservative politician said, they have a much, maybe an 80, a study showed about an 80% opposition to uh, Muslim schools. But then when it's uh, a British National Party or, or populist right politician, same wording, given to another group, there is a much lower opposition to this. And that's kind of an illustration of the way that uh, ethics works, that it's contaminated by this, what's seen as a racist party, which is true for the British National Party. And therefore, that dampens down uh, support for particular policy. And so, yeah, people are always cross-pressured a little bit between those uh, moral beliefs and their sort of uh, ethnic loyalties and identities. Thanks. I think I want to hear a little bit more about this repress, the repress idea. So give me another example of how, how you would know that somebody um, had this kind of belief, but it was repressed. So where you would see that, the evidence. Okay, so this is all, the way you get at this is tends to be through either survey analysis where you say, okay, opposition to immigration correlates with uh, views on, let's say, uh, whether you think it's racist for a white person to want less immigration to preserve their group. That's, but that's perhaps not as as clear a way of getting at this as the as an experimental method. Where, for example, um, you can 
do something called a list experiment where if I were to, you, you give pers- a person four statements and you say, tell me how many of these statements you agree with. And it might be uh, athletes um, are paid way too much money. You, you'll throw a few outrageous questions in there like, you know, uh, criminals should be uh, publicly whipped or something. And then you will throw in uh, a question on immigration should be reduced to zero and you'll throw in some other innocuous question. And you'll get a number. So no, so the person isn't revealing which of these statements they agree with. They just give you a number. Then on a second group of people, you ask three of the four questions, not all four. And then you ask the immigration questions separately. And through this technique, you're able to add everything up and compare the number of statements and see in the concealed condition where people are just asked about immigration within a set of four questions and where they're asked about it separately. So it's out of the closet, if you like. You can compare the average response to that. So that technique Ah. has been used. And so in the U.S., for example, a study showed that 60 percent of white Americans in the concealed condition were saying that immigration should be reduced to zero, whereas when they were answering a question on it directly, it was only 39%. That's kind of one example of of this kind of technique. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That technique is fascinating. <laughs> I would say that, that since Trump's election, some have argued and in fact shown that uh, some of that reticence has gone away. So it may be that that repress instinct for some people uh, has been diminished. Right. Yes, I, I would imagine that he might have that effect, although I'm just speculating. We need to see data. Um, <laughs> right. So so the fourth option is join. So um, tell me about the, the, the join, the, the fourth of these options. Yeah, so this last option is really, um, instead of fighting the change or fleeing it, People can sort of join with the newcomers uh, in friendship, intermarriage, and and assimilation. And that's um, where I see things going in the long term. Um, And and so, for example, um, in Britain, I did some projections with a demographer where we just took existing racial groups. We divided the groups into sort of racial categories, including, say, white Europeans with white British into the same category. Um, and what you can see is is and, and minor all non-white groups into the same category. What what you find is that given existing intermarriage rates, Britain, which is only two percent mixed race now, um, is only going to be about seven percent mixed race mid-century. So not a great deal of change. But uh, by the end of the century, the mixed race group is up to thirty percent, and then by uh, fifty years later, it's seventy-five percent, and then very quickly, it's it's pretty much everybody. So. That's just to say it's going to take a while, but um, the, the situation, the picture next century looks like that of a mixed race majority picture mm. for, for Western Europe, North America. Now, the question that I, you know, and the question that I would have, and, and like you, I'm sort of a mixture of different things. I'm a quarter Chinese and a quarter uh, Latino and half Jewish. So I'm a mixture of things. That's going to become pretty common. The question then is going to be, what will this uh, melting pot, what Mike Lind calls um, this beige population, how will it identify? And some people sort of see this as part of a story of ever-increasing diversity. And that's something that I'm – a position which I tend to to reject because I think that 
actually, it's just as likely that this mixed population is going to lead to uh, greater unity and, and convergence on uh, particular uh, consciousness and um, collective memory and myth of origin and so on. And I think actually, if you look at the long sweep of history, uh, groups have always tended to generally, not always, but but tended to melt into each other. And yet the cultural matrix of these groups tends to be more enduring. It's interesting in Central Asia, you'll find a group like the Turkmen, for example, who are, some of them look more Caucasian, some of them look more East Asian, and yet uh, there's that doesn't really make much difference to how they deal with each other. That's not actually the basis for ethnic uh, division. And to some extent in Latin America, that's true, although of course you do have racial, more racial stratification perhaps uh, with a clearer black category in Brazil, for example. Um, but you have a sort of range of phenotypes, and that's not the basis, say, uh, for clear ethnic delineations. Um, so that's kind of – another example would be Hawaii where you, you, there's almost no pure Hawaiians, a few thousand uh, pure-blood Hawaiians, and yet this group is increasing in size all the time through people identifying with it. And so even though they have a mix of different strains in their background, they would all tend to gravitate to that traditional uh, myth of ancestry and memory. So I think that's kind of the, – the, the Hawaiian sort of Turkmen type example is is – what I see happening longer term with white majorities in Western countries. Now, of course, you know, the left really hates to talk about assimilation and the far right really hates to talk about miscegenation. So I've kind of got, you know, attacks from both quarters uh, pretty vociferously on this. But I think I I don't see really how this can be. I I think just it's almost mathematically uh, going to happen. Now, of course, it's always possible that some group of whites will decide to hive off and maintain themselves uh, you know, racially pure, but I, I think the greater likelihood is this melting pot uh, pattern. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure if people will decide. Well, I guess people could decide to hive off, or also it's it could happen accidentally. Some proportion of the of the group, but I just through their their preference, their unforced preferences. There might be people who just who prefer people who look very much like them, and therefore they end up that that could end up being a, a self perpetuating thing within some group. Civic nationalism goes a really can go a really long way towards uniting people, and people can become united around symbols of belonging to a, a nation, a geographical region, they can feel very invested in those symbols, because, uh, especially if they were born in that place. And the ancestry can be much less important to that. I think that's true. But I, I guess in my book, I'm arguing, I mean, civic nationalism has been on the lips of policymakers now and political theorists for <clears throat> something on the order of 25 years. And I think the problem is that civic nationalism is in some way dependent upon there being a secure ethnic majority, not necessarily dependent in the sense, I mean, you can have a highly multi-ethnic society. I used Hawaii as an example, or Guyana, or as, as examples that, or, or Mauritius, they function fine. I don't mean to say uh, that that's necessary, but it's just easier in many ways when you do have that majority to have support for, uh, you know, redistribution of wealth in terms of welfare spending, in terms of 
democracy not being polarized on ethnic lines. And I think, therefore, underlying these civic nations are what I would call majority melting pots. That, that in the case of the U.S., for example, you had, yes, the American creed, which was ostensibly about everybody's an American if you subscribe to the Declaration of Independence and the creed. But at the same time, you also had this um, melting pot in which Jews and Christian, uh, Catholics were melting in with the Protestants and uh, groups were melting together into this what was effectively um, a, a majority group and which I think whose boundaries incidentally I think are already starting to encompass uh, at least people of mixed Hispanic and Asian background in the case of Britain also um, uh, part African background. Uh, so I think that um, the problem is when you're getting rapid ethnic change, I don't think the civic nation is enough to cohere a society unless you have powerful external pressures on the state, such as the Cold War uh, or perhaps the War on Terror and certainly the Second World War. And these sorts of uh, conflicts, ideological and military conflicts, will will glue people together. Uh, France, particularly between sort of 19th, the Dreyfus Affair period around the turn of the century and First World War, the conflict with Germany uh, really helped to sort of assimilate a lot of the new immigrant groups. But um, <laughs> I think the problem lies when we don't, when we have a decline in warfare and the end of ideology and ideological, major ideological threats, then a civic nation, which is based around, you know, the, the formula of sort of liberal democracy and Western values is not necessarily going to be enough to uh, to, to sort of cohere the, the people in their day-to-day life. So in day-to-day life, what matters in America is not necessarily that everybody is into liberty, but uh, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. And, and that is in some sense tied to ethnicity. So I think that the success of that melting pot, which is a more ethnic process of assimilation, is, I think, important to keeping the civic national spirit um, simply more united. So, so I don't think it's enough to just talk about British values as Gordon Brown has tried to do, and that it doesn't matter what the religious and ethnic composition is. So I think that some project of intermarriage and assimilation is, is probably needed in order to make it work. So the assimilation really is a kind of, um, I mean, what we have at the moment are groups that used to be a uh, hundred separate little groups. So, for example, the Huguenots, when they arrived in at the end of the 17th century to England, were people were worried that they would never assimilate. They were a completely separate, weird group. And um, now it's not, no one even knows who has Huguenot ancestry. Right. Um, it's become completely enveloped and, yes, melted in is, is the right metaphor. So if I'm reading you right, and I, I think I agree with this, um, that process is inevitable. Um, and it over over time, more and more identities are blended together into this kind of sense of the the national eth- the eth- the kind of ethnic group. Um, but it's it's when the pace is go when the pace is too fast that people panic. Yeah, because I, these processes, unfortunately, take several generations. And if you think of the arrival of Jews and Catholics in the United States starting in the 1890s uh, and going through, you know, that initial wave sort of stops in the 1920s. But it really took 
let's say from 1900, 1910 until 1980 for a kind of almost complete melting, you know, a, a, a heavy melting to occur. So that's three, four generations. And I don't think we should expect this process now to be any faster than that. I don't think it'll be slower than that, but I think it'll be roughly the same situation. And actually in the U.S., um, during the time that that those groups were kind of unmelted, uh, and, and it's very logarithmic. So that this is why, as I mentioned with Britain, the mixed race share, only about 7% mid-century and then suddenly rising to 30% and then 75%. It's kind of, it takes off, but it happens late after a number of generations. And so I think this is where, in our lifetimes, up to 2050, the dominant story will be greater diversification, whereas it's not till next century that the diversity levels will start to drop at, at due to the melting process. And so it's as the diversity levels are rising that people who, again, that part of the population that's order-seeking that sees differences or diversity and differences disorderly, is going to respond negatively to a situation in which diversity is rising. Um, and so part of the issue, I, if you're to design immigration from an optimal point of view, I think you almost need it slower in the period when you've got this rising diversity. And then once you get that melting and the diversity starts to come down, you can then turn up the levels. Uh, so, so in a way, the problem we have now is we're in that early stage when the diversity is increasing and the melting has yet to really show its face in a serious way. Um, and, and that's kind of the dilemma we're in, really. Um, so the conditions are kind of propitious for populist right movements now because of this. Now, one technique you might say is to try and get people to think conservative people to think long term about this melting and to say, well, your group, your your collective consciousness and memory does have a future through the fact that your ancestry will be more widely disseminated through the mixing process and um, people will assimilate to uh, your culture and traditions and memories. Now that when you do an experiment and you get people to read about that, they actually become more relaxed about immigration. I've done this uh, UKIP supporters uh, in particular. So I think that trying to, to anticipate the future might be one way of thinking about how to deal with populist anxieties now. But I do think that the immigration issue will also have to be, uh, will also have to reach an accommodation on immigration levels. Mm. And you also talked about there will have to be more transparency to the process. So one thing that I always get a lot of pushback uh, about is that I think that if you can only take a limited number of immigrants, which in general uh, is, is the case, then you need to choose between immigrants and you choose not on the basis of, of you must choose um, to some degree on the basis of need. So that's asylum. If people are in dire need, then you have to offer them asylum. But if I'm, if we're talking about economic migrants and people who are not coming from severe danger or uh, war, a war zone at home, then I think that we need to make some selections based on likelihood and speed of their their integration into our Western society. So sharing of values, I culture in the sense of values. So not in the sense of how you dress, um, what art you produce, uh, what you eat, what songs you sing, or anything like that. All of those things can be as varied as 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 you wish. But 
for example, we should, I think, prioritize gay men. We should prioritize people from minority religions, uh, especially when they've come from theocratic countries, minority religions at home, not minorities in the West. We should prioritize groups like Ahmadis who are persecuted throughout the Muslim world. And we should prioritize women over men. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, because women in, you know, women in most parts of the world are more oppressed. So in most of the non-Western world, women are considerably more oppressed. So that's why I would prioritize them. I'm always told that this is racist. And I don't really understand that because this is not, this is precisely the opposite of the Trumpian approach, which is we'll take people from X countries and people not from Y countries, but is based on the individuals. I mean, I feel that there is a correlation between an individual's likelihood of assimilating easily into the um, new host culture and their need to be in that culture. So a person who has very Western values in a very non-Western traditional country is, uh, is going to be happier and safer in the West. And those are the people I feel that we should we should prioritize if we're going to make choices. Right, right. So, yeah, this is basically the idea that uh, there's a difference between freedom of association, which we have uh, within a society, and and parts of society where we have to exercise non-discrimination. So if you're a bank uh, and you're serving customers, you're dealing with the public or your government office, you cannot be discriminating on the basis of um, what religion somebody has or, or, or even their, their values or ideology. Um, however, uh, when it comes to uh, who you want to associate with, let's say uh, to marry, to be a friend's friend with, where you want to live, etc., you have the right to choose on whatever criteria you wish to choose on. Uh, and so if somebody who is, let's say, a conservative uh, Muslim wants to marry you or wants to move, become your friend or uh, join your club, you you have the right to, to refuse that person from that private association. So a club and association is kind of an extension of that uh, sphere in which discrimination is permitted at any time you get a lawsuit, for, for example, against a uh, a men's club or a fraternity for only admitting men, they've all failed because this is the realm of freedom of association. However, on the other hand, if you're uh, serving the public, say you're a bakery and you don't want to serve uh, gay people, then that's not permitted. You're not permitted to discriminate. Uh, so with that distinction in mind, if we think about immigration, um, immigration is the relationship between uh, a state and the rest of the world. And that relationship, um, in my view, is analogous really to, uh, not just in my view, by the way, this is a, the view of the political theorist Christopher Wellman, who wrote a famous paper in 2008 on this, that nations are essentially, nation states are essentially like associations that can decide who they wish to associate with, just as a country can join the European Union, but if the European Union wants them to be part of it, that country can say no. And in the same way, a country has similar rights vis-a-vis immigration to decide and discriminate on the basis of various various cultural characteristics. Um, so that, I think, is a common mistake that people would ordinarily say that uh, nations cannot discriminate. Now, I do, however, there is, however, an exception, which is where the nation says we will only admit, say, white people. Um, in a country that is ethnically mixed, well, that's clearly 
uh, violating equal treatment for non-white people within the country. Um, so there you have a situation where there is a violation. But in, this, in the sense of, let's say, a country that was, you know, 50% Christian and 50% Muslim, and they wanted to admit 50-50, um, that would be fair to both groups. So th- that's just to say this discrimination uh, externally is, is not the same as discrimination internally, whereas internally, if the country said, oh, no, we're going to discriminate against conservative Muslims at, at re- receiving benefits or in being served in restaurants, then that clearly is a violation of their right to equal treatment. So there's a confusion in many people's minds between what goes on within a country and what goes on between a country and the rest of the world, where the free association principle uh, comes to the fore. So again, and, and, and I don't think people have really thought this through very well, because when immigration began, you could make the argument that saying no to uh, any black immigrants is clearly identifying one or, or Muslim immigrants is identifying an outgroup and sort of excluding them. And I think that's much more um, amenable to the argument that, that you're, tr- you're essentially uh, being racist against a particular group. But once it gets into a position where you've got a mix of diverse country already and it's a question of volume and character of rate of change, then I don't think that objection uh, stands. I think that if you make objections that are if categorical on the basis of race, um, then you're also, you're, I mean, as you say, you're sending a message, a very unpleasant message to people already living in your country uh, who share that race. So, you Correct. know, if you were to yeah. say, we will not take any more Parsis <laughs> because Parsis are right. not compatible with our values, that sends a message. That is one of the big problems. Right. That's saying they're, yeah, that's sort of saying they're second class. They're not really part of the nation. Mm, yeah. So what what do you recommend as the best steps going forward? You've already talked a little bit about this, that we should, one thing we, we can do is projecting forward, make it clear how inevitable the the melting process is over longer time and and also the shift towards quote unquote mixed race because maybe once it's there we will no longer think of that as mixed race because maybe we will have different categories just as we don't think somebody who is whose some of whose ancestors were Huguenot and some were Welsh Celts is mixed race for example well one distinction of one slight distinction, of course, is that the Huguenots didn't alter the racial appearance right. much of the. They probably they probably did a little bit, but it, it, it's it's so. Part of what will also probably happen is that racial appearance will no longer be a criteria for inclusion in this group, right? So you'll be a bit like the Hawaiians, where or the the Turkmen, where you have a range of phenotypes, and you won't be able to tell just by looking at somebody which group they belong to. Sorry, if they are blonde-haired and blue-eyed, yes, they will be white. Uh, but um, for the, um, for the well, most well, part... Well, maybe. So I had this conversation with Razib Khan, genet- the geneticist. Okay. And he is something of an expert on uh, skin color inheritance. And he's written an article also for Ario, which I'll link in the show notes, which is called Why There Will Not Be a Beige Future. Oh, interesting. He doesn't mean beige in the in the... Um, metaphorical sense that you were using it earlier, i.e. many mixed-race people. We mixed-race people are going to inherit the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, 
he meant it in a literal sense, like not ev- it w- we won't have a a world full of people with um, a mid brown skin color like Razib's. Okay, because actually skin color inheritance does is non Mendelian, and it's it's let's just say I won't go into it now, but it's it's unpredictable. Right. So there there will be people who are fairer skinned who look very white and who actually have a very mixed background, mm. it will become more and more difficult to tell. I, I sort of intuitively know this because many mixed European and Indian people look totally European. I would say of those that I know, and I kind of, uh, I know quite a lot of mixed Euro-Indian people, and I would say 90% look European. And then the other right. 10%... Uh, have a have a slightly more Indian, are uh, more easily read as as Indian or part Indian, but it's it's very very common to yeah. uh, to look European uh, if you have a mixed Indian and European ancestry, and that has to do with the, this uh, the mechanisms of skin color inheritance and how and the genetic history of India basically the DNA history. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's going to be even more confusing than than you imagine. Right. <laughs> but we can already we already have groups that I mean if you take a group like African Americans or uh, you know Hispanics or or Hawaiians, you know, you already have that kind of range of, of phenotypes. Now, of course you you will get you do have what's called colorism which is a certain advantage that lighter skinned people in those societies sometimes have. I, I think much more in the case of, say, Latin America and to some extent historically amongst African Americans, but it's it doesn't seem to me that amongst the Hawaiians that you have if you have a higher share of Hawaiian, you are somehow higher uh, status. It doesn't seem like that operates. And certainly not in the Turkmen case. It doesn't matter what your mix is. So I, I again I, I sort of imagine that you'll get these Groups that have, a, as you say, a range of different phenotypes, and it'll just mean that you won't know just by looking at somebody which group they're in until you talk to them. Uh, but but probably there will be some kind of cultural cues, like a, a a Western first name, for example, might be the way you tell people apart, or it might be certain ways of dress, or or, or it's hard to say. But I think it'll just be fuzzier. And there's a lot of fuzzy boundaries between ethnic groups today. If you think about an assimilated Kurd who's assimilated as into Turkish life compared to a Turk. I mean, that's a pretty fuzzy line mm, um, mm. If, you know, who speaks Turkish and it's not speaking Kurdish. So, so there's a lot of ethnic boundaries that are fuzzier. Uh, you don't always have the sharp, you know, ethnic boundaries, say Hindu Muslim, it's based on religion. It's very sharp, but uh, in other cases it's fuzzier. Yes, and I think also you can. The Hindu Muslim b- barrier can be fuzzy, but I don't want to talk endlessly about India okay. here because okay. <laughs> um, uh, there will be a podcast episode with another Indian theme quite soon. Um, so right. I, I'll get off back off my hobby horse and let him just pasture for a while. But I think that also there's it's going to be possible to choose and this has been something of a of I mean it's something that I think a lot of mixed race people experience I certainly experience I feel like my identity is very much chosen so I could right. decide that I'm totally Scottish and completely identify with that and I could not even tell anyone that I had uh, was half Indian I could 
not tell anyone I was Parsi or Zoroastrian. I could just kind of pass for 100% Scottish. And if I wanted to do that, if I felt happy doing that, why not? And as it is, I I sort of lean more towards the, the Indian. Right. And if I have to choose, and if I'm asked to, to choose one, then I, I say I'm Indian. But Yes, it's kind of a choice. And I think that it can even go in phases. So a friend who is half Japanese and half Argentine, who is also uh, visually uh, difficult to place. So I think most people think he looks Argentine and then looking closer, they're not quite sure. And most Japanese people also don't think he looks Japanese, but as soon as he says he's half Japanese, they they can immediately see it. Um, and he he really he said that when he was young, he fell in love with the Japanese side of himself, with his Japaneseness. And he went to Japan and he did his undergraduate studies there, and he spent a lot of time in Japan, and he was also only eating Japanese food and wearing all traditional Japanese clothes. <laughs> and um, and he became this complete Japanophile. And then he says he sort of got over himself <laughs> and returned to Argentina and kind of became Argentine again. Right. <laughs> um, so I think it's, um, I hope that, that there will be more choices and therefore people will be able to emphasize the part of their heritage that appeals to them more culturally. Well, yeah, I think and there's, there is already quite a bit of research on this ethnic, there's a book called Ethnic Options. It deals more with people of mixed European backgrounds. So the US, Amer- you know, the white population is heavily intermixed. So people usually have multiple ancestries. And, and, and so they try to, to understand, I think this was Mary Waters, you know, why did people choose as they chose? Uh, you know, so what what they sort of found was that some, ex, you know, Italian was seen as somewhat more exotic than Scottish, so it had somewhat of an advantage in those sorts of mixtures uh, with other European groups. Uh, the other thing, people, you know, is that ideology and politics can play a role. So, um, Latino white mixture in the U.S. If you are half of both uh, and you're a Republican, you're more likely to identify as white, and if you're a Democrat, more likely as Latino. Now, these are only sort of tendencies; it's not absolute. Uh, and there's also differences between particular mixes. So, the white Asian and Latino Asian mix, uh, people of that background who don't identify just as mixed, would favor would tend to identify more as white, whereas in the case of mixed African-American and white, they would identify more as black. But that's partly because of that's how they're considered in the wider society. Uh, But you also Mm. find, you know, uh, historically, like, you know, the Whigs in Britain would have identified with the Anglo-Saxons and the Tories with the Normans. So you have this political inflection of ancestry myths. And I suspect in the future, we might see a bit of that as well, that presumably those who identify with the sort of white European heritage in say in, in a European country, that might be be something that's more mainstream, whereas sort of the progressive or more radical uh, identity might be with the polyglot strains that have come into the country. I mean, I know in Turkey, for example, that um, some of the secular Western people 
seem to identify more with the Byzantine Empire, um, whereas the mainstream of Turkish society is more into the Central Asian Turkic uh, myth. Uh, so there's going to be some of that mm. playing around going on. But but even if once people are heavily mixed, they will know that there's a certain amount of playing that's going on, and it won't be that super serious, I would have thought. Right. And that, I think, is really going to be a good right. thing. <laughs> that some of that seriousness is taken away from it. Because, I I mean, I really don't think there there is a strong... There's a reality to the desire to feel part of a group. But as I think you say in the, in the book yourself, that group, if, uh, even if you are quite attached to your racial heritage, that group is nevertheless not necessarily your race in many situations, even for, for people to whom their race is important. You know, you gave the example of if you're a fundamentalist Muslim from Iran, you probably have more in common with a fundamentalist Muslim from Pakistan than you do with a than you do with Armin Navabi, okay, for example, right. right? Who is a prominent atheist? Um, so uh, the there there are these kinds of elective affinities yeah. that all that always cut across racial groups. Yeah, I mean, I I just wouldn't want to, however disparage the people who identify with it's like identifying with extended family it matters to some people and not to others part of the power of it comes from the fact it's transgenerational survives your life and any individual lifetime mm. um and actually you know the history of, of a you know the history of nationalism too is full of people who are half this and half that who are the most passionate you know uh, like Eamon de, de Valera yes. in Ireland who's half Spanish half Irish it's just one example, but so so I think some people have that desire to identify with the ethnic or national community. Some people are into transnational identities like religion or like ideology or or, or something else. Uh, I think Star Trek or Star Trek, yeah. <laughs> so there's needs to be room for all of that um, to take place, but I don't think the mixing will fundamentally change that split that some people were are still going to to have a need or desire for the um to that rootedness of ethnic identity and others will not they'll be into more chosen identities or or universalist ones like religion uh yeah and i don't think religion is necessarily a good substitute right. <laughs> right. um yeah. The theocracies are not 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 very not very good places. Well, yeah, but people forget <laughs> people forget that you know you want to talk about ethnic inclusion and diversity. Islamic State as a perfect example, um, mm. you know. But it, it, this is one of the the ways in which you know universalism does not necessarily. Mean, I mean, I don't think it's any more likely to mean an open society. Um, you know, so you can have very intolerant universalisms like like ISIS. But yet that's op- accepts anybody from any part of the world, as long as they have that very narrow belief. System. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I can I, I don't want to overplay this, but I can see a little bit of a parallel with the social justice left right, there. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, they haven't started beheading anybody. No, a milder, um, much milder. <laughs> yeah. Much milder. Yeah, it's not a violent. Uh, it's not a violent movement. Um, is there is there anything that you have 
been wanting to say, a point you've been wanting to make, or that I have overlooked, which you haven't had a chance to say? Not really. I think we've we've covered uh, you know most of the basics. I mean, just on that last point about the social justice left, though, I do think it's important to for me to make the point that the I think extremism on that um, identity left. Uh, is a, a force multiplier for populism, uh, a right-wing populism, simply because of that. You know, it, it is very important for people not to be racist, but it is also, once you start expanding the meaning of racism to encompass, say, wanting slower uh, change or slower immigration, then uh, you you basically do not allow the mainstream parties, the, the, the mainstream, to take that issue on, and that opens up room for a political entrepreneur, a kind of bootlegger or black marketeer who is going to cater to that demand. It's like bootleggers catering to uh, people who can't find alcohol in the main store. So I think really, if we're going to overcome polarization, we're also going to have to find a way of taming uh, where that, uh, what I call left modernism in the book, where this progressive uh, religion has gone to try and sort of move again away from black, white. You're either a with us or against us, you're either progressive or you're a reactionary uh, into a sort of more shade of gray. So instead of open and close, thinking about faster, slower, uh, instead of yeah. yeah, instead of multicultural versus monocultural, it's not that, it's how multicultural, right? So it's getting into that conversation zone, which I think is being impeded by this very totalizing uh, binary worldview that, that some uh, progressives have. Uh, yes, I I agree. Although I usually don't call them progressives. Okay. I just, um, because I don't want to be part of that. Right. <laughs> I just can call them the social justice left. And I think it's a, I think the extreme views are held by a relatively small number of people, but those people are disproportionately noisy, as as extremists tend to be. Yes. And they play a constant Martin Bailey game where people don't uh, think that they are just deploring racism and supporting multiculturalism, and, and people agree with that. And they, um, and under that guise, within that Trojan horse, some more extreme and I would say extremely annoying ideas. I don't find them kind of pernicious in the same way as I do some of the ethno nationalist stuff. But some extremely annoying and nonsensical ideas are also smuggled in and just muddy the waters, dilute the message, make things more, make it more difficult for us to argue, for us, the the rest of us on the left, among whom I count myself, to argue for the things that we want to argue for. Yeah. I guess that's how I'd put I'd it. agree. I'd agree with that. But I also I, I, I'd certainly think that the social justice left is nothing like as authoritarian as you would have found, say, in, in, in communist uh, Russia or, or North Korea. But, oh, no. Uh, but, yeah. But yeah. I think the problem is, is like with there is an analogy with communism in that most of the sins that uh, they commit are sins of omission. So they they in pursuing the sunlit uplands and the utopia, uh, it's it's because of that they then sort of shield their eyes from the effects that these are having. So, for example, you will never get such a person to ever admit that what they're doing is helping the populist right, even though we know from the data, again, that 
hostility to political correctness was the second most important predictor of a, a vote for Donald Trump. And we know, for example, that the inability for the mainstream parties to, to articulate uh, or, or to campaign to say, we will lower migration levels in line with popular demands, because they were prevented from doing that, that actually opened up space for the populist. None of those things, they will not engage in that sort of, um, well, self-criticism. And so I think it's these downstream effects of political correctness. It's not so much what's on campus as the way those red lines of what you can talk about filter into places that do make decisions that do affect society. So there is this, yes. this dialectic yeah. between the extremism on the left and the extremism on the right, which I, which, which I don't think that they're willing to face up to. Yes. You know, I, I, I think force multiplier is a good way of putting it. And because I don't think the social justice left has in some way caused the populist right. The populist right has been around forever. And it's very strong in some countries where there really is no social justice left to speak of, like India, for example. Right. So it's not a relationship of dependency in that way or of or of some kind of equivalence. They're both as bad as each other. I don't think that. The populist right, right is worse and older and appeals to hijacks uh, certain really deep-rooted uh, human instincts. But I, but it, yes, it doesn't help. It has not been helpful, um, I would say. And especially that, I, especially what you point to, which is being unable to speak about certain topics because whatever you say, whatever view you take, is going to be flagged as racist unless you take the most simplistic, sloganeering kind of view. That is also profoundly unhelpful because. If we we don't want the populist right to be the only ones providing solutions, because we I don't want their solutions. But if we want to find our own better solutions, we're going to have to confront the issues. Yeah, I think that's 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 exactly what I'm I'm saying as well. I think you phrased it probably better than I did. Um, but yeah, and and I think particularly in the West, you're right that. East Europe, India, although East Europe, partly what they're doing is they're pointing to the excess of political correctness. Even the Chinese have a word, uh, Baizuo, to describe it. And, and it's almost a way of discrediting Western liberalism. Oh, I've heard that Baizuo um, doesn't just mean political correctness, but it's liberals in general. And so it includes kind of more core liberal values. Right. So that's even worse, though, because they're using it to sort of smear the entire thing. What I'm sort of saying is this is giving right. liberalism a right. bad name. When people try and squeeze it together with what I would call left modernism, this is sort of uh, social justice left, is kind of almost giving it a bad name outside the liberal democratic core countries. I agree. Yeah. I'm co I'm constantly trying to defend the left against people who say the entire left is the social justice loons. You know, right. the, uh, I'm not I'm not saying all social justice leftists are loons, but the loons within the social justice left, they see those the most extreme people as the left. But, but I worry that, I worry that they are converting some some part. Of, I mean, even though this the progressive activists in the uh, hidden tribe study, that's only 8% of the US population. Uh, so it's small, but quite influential. And also, I think, able to move the dial on at least some, particularly white liberals, who might be more reasonable 
are being pulled in that direction a little bit. Uh, I just don't know how influential it's become, but I agree with you that the, the main, you know, the main um, swath of the left is 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 perfectly liberal and reasonable, and 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 the question is how they get out from under the influence of of these people. Mm. I do just want to end by saying, by asking you about the title of your book, right. White Shift. What does that word mean to you? Well, um. well, as you, you may or may not know, publishers love one-word titles, yes. <laughs> especially, especially when you can Google them and nothing else comes up. But in this case, actually, um, this comes from physics with the red shift and, and blue shift. Mm, oh, that's well, what I was thinking, yeah, too. Yeah, I sort of thought, okay, well, we're, we're talking about two forms of white shift, The sort of first the white declined and then the white uh, changing into, in a way, this mixed race. So I thought that was kind of a, a useful way of capturing the book. I like it. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I really appreciate you taking this, this time. Thanks very much, Iona. I'd like to thank uh, the wonderful Justin Ward. This podcast has been brought to you courtesy of two very polite Canadians, um, <laughs> Justin and Eric. <laughs> We're all polite. Um, so thank you to our wonderful sound engineer. And thank you so much, Eric. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.